Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Please turn your Bible, be seated please, and turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Moran and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Milan and Chilean died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Well, good morning, and a happy Memorial Day weekend to you. Thank you, Lee, for helping us think a little bit about what that means, and I do hope you have some time in the midst of the rest and the recreation to, to give thanks to God for, uh, for those who've gone before us. Uh, we are in Ruth this morning, as you picked up for sure, and uh, we'll be starting that. I'm going to pray in just a minute, but before I pray, just a reminder that there is, you might, might have heard this before, there's a business meeting immediately following the service. Let's just take two minutes and, and jump into that business meeting. Um, it's a holiday weekend, I know, and everybody wants to go do something fun. So, uh, so we'll, uh, we won't take a big pause. We'll just, so if you need to leave, you, you can leave. But we really do urge members to stay, make sure we got that quorum, and, and we'll have a, a, probably a relatively short business meeting after the service. So uh, let's pray and ask the Lord's help with this passage. Lord, thank you so much for uh, working in us and through us to bring us here today. We give you the praise for your uh, providence and uh, guidance over our lives. Thank you for your sovereignty, Lord. And uh, we just are honored to be in, uh, in your presence and to be your sons and your daughters today. Thank you for the Bible and thank you for uh, every word of it, Lord, which speaks into our lives, whether it's a a theologically dense book like Hebrews we've been studying, or a, a beautiful story like this one that we're beginning this morning. Uh, in all of it, you speak, and um, just invite you to speak to us today through your word, by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The story is told of three men. Uh, each man owned a clothing store, and their three stores were all next to each other. They were right in a row, and they actually were in the same building, so kind of three storefronts, if you can picture them, three clothing stores, one, two, three, right in a row. And uh, some tough times had fallen on their town, and uh, there weren't quite as many customers coming through as there, need, as there used to be. And, and so all three owners decided they needed to do something to, to bring in more customers. And so the owner of the shop on the left decided to have a big sale. And so he came out one morning with a big banner and he put it over the entrance to his store there on the left and the banner said, year-end clearance. A few minutes later, the owner of the store on the right-hand side happened to come out and he saw what the other guy was doing. He said, okay, that's a great idea. He went in, got his own sign, came out. His sign said, annual closeout. 
right? So he's having annual closeout, he's having year-end clearance. Uh, a few minutes later, the guy in the middle came out, the store owner in the middle store, and, and uh, he looked at those two signs and he said, oh man, I'm going to lose all my business. I need to, to do something quick. So he went inside, came back out with a big banner. He put it up. His banner said, main entrance. <laughs> Come on in. How should we live when times get tough? How do we live in troubled times? We all have to answer uh, that question. We have to wrestle with that question sooner or later. And while I start with what I hoped was a funny story, the, the question itself is a terribly serious one. And it's also painfully relevant. It's a serious and relevant question. Because you don't need me to tell you that we do live in troubled times. All you got to do is check the news. A war in Ukraine, threats from China, tension in the Middle East. I could say those, that last one every, all the time. Uh, tension in the Middle East. Uh, lots of faraway troubles. But the truth is the troubles aren't just far away. Many troubles hit closer to home. Uh, we have troubles in our nation, troubles in our state, troubles even in our town. Even troubles, many of us, that affect our own homes. And so it is not, I don't have to work real hard to sell you on the idea that we live in troubled times. We are beginning a, a new series this morning. This, uh, this summer is kind of the kickoff to summer. Memorial Day, people think of it that way. Uh, this summer, we're going to study through Ruth. So the Sundays when I preach, I want to take you through Ruth. And I, one of the reasons I wanted to go to Ruth is that Ruth helps us answer this very question. How do you live in troubled times? Uh, Ruth is a marvelous book. A lot of Christians would say it's one of their favorites, especially in the Old Testament. You know, a lot of, a lot of people's, uh, uh, one of their favorite books from the Old Testament. Uh, it has a great plot, right? It's a very compelling story, very interesting characters. Uh, there's tension, there's romance, there's even some intrigue along the way. Uh, and so it's a marvelous story. It's a marvelous book. But behind that is a life-changing message. It's not just a story. There's a life-changing message here. And that message is that God is still God. Right? If I had to summarize this morning's introductory, if I had to summarize Ruth, the message of Ruth is that God is still God even in our most troubled times. I'm just going to introduce this series this morning, and so I'm going to look at the book's introduction, holiday weekend, we can go a little shorter, uh, and so I just want to look at those first five verses, and what you get in the first five verses, the one Sherry read, ones read, read before, uh, is a backdrop, right? The author is going to tell a really compelling story, so he starts with the backdrop. Here's the backdrop to the story, and so I want to just go through that backdrop, and the way I want to work through this is I want to just talk in big picture terms about two types of troubled times. I think we all can connect with this. Two types of troubled times that we face. Naomi faced them. Ruth faced them. We still face them today. Even though the story is many, many centuries ago, not, this at least hasn't changed. We face troubled times just like these. So let's look at uh, that passage, Ruth chapter 1. And uh, here's what I want to do. Before I actually get to those two types of troubled times and, and dig into the text itself, I want to do one more sort of introductory thing here. And I want to ask an, a big picture question about the book, which is simply, why should we study it at all? Right? I mean, we only get, you know, 52 Sundays a year. Why should we dedicate uh, eight or nine, which is what I have in mind? Why should we, we dedicate a bunch of Sundays to studying a little book like Ruth? 
Well, uh, about 15 years ago, John Piper wrote a, a book on Ruth. And uh, some of you will recognize that name, Piper, and you're like, uh-oh, John Piper, we're going to be really dense here. But actually, it was a devotional book. It's real thin. Uh, and the book's called A Sweet and Bitter Providence. And it was basically just a, a kind of a meditation through the book of Ruth. And in the introduction to that little book, and I recommend it if you're looking for a book to read on Ruth, that's a good one. Uh, but in the introduction to the, the, this book he wrote on Ruth, he actually asks this same question. Why should modern people study the book of Ruth? And uh, in classic Piper fashion, he came up with at least seven reasons. And so he saw, offered seven reasons to study Ruth. And I actually thought they're really, really good. And so I just wanted to take a couple of minutes here and give you Piper's, so with, uh, with all due uh, hat tip here to, to John Piper, Here's seven reasons we, we do spend a couple of months in this book. So let me just tell you what they are. Well, I study Ruth. First of all is the obvious one. It's in the Bible. So we study Ruth because it's Scripture. And 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's not just Romans and the Gospels, right? All Scripture. And so we're going to study Ruth because it's God's Word. It's God's Word to us. Uh, number two, we study Ruth because it's a beautiful love story. It's kind of the, uh, the opposite of the first one. Uh, it's a beautiful love story. And we like good love stories, right? Even a lot of the men, we, we, you know, we say, oh, no, I don't. Yeah, we do. We love a good love story, right? And, and our culture needs a good love story, if truth be told. We're, there's a lot of confusion in the times we live in uh, when it comes to love and romance and, and sexuality. A lot of confusion on, on all three of those. And, and Ruth actually gives us a biblical way to talk about them from a biblical perspective. And so Ruth is a beautiful love story, and it gives us a, a way to think about those very important important issues. Uh, related to that one, number three, Ruth uh, addresses issues of biblical manhood and womanhood, right? And it's, like I say, it's kind of connected to that second reason. Uh, in the times in which you and I live, if you ask somebody, what does it mean to be a man? Or what does it mean to be a woman? Uh, many people in our culture today do not know how to answer that question. And even if they've got an instinctive answer, they're not sure it's a safe answer to give, right? They're not sure they're even allowed to answer that question because, you know, even, you can't even fall back on biology anymore. At least 10 years ago, you know, you could at least refer to body parts. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Now they tell us that doesn't even mean anything. But Ruth, we come to the, to the scripture and Ruth clears up that confusion. How Ruth lives as a woman, how Boaz, we'll meet him in a few weeks, lives as a man and how he treats the women in his life and, and how the, their interactions happen, uh, it, it actually gives us a wonderful picture of God's design for, for manhood and womanhood. And so Ruth lets us talk about this pretty important issue in our own day, biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Number four, uh, we should also study Ruth because Ruth addresses issues of racism and immigration. Racism and immigration. There's a lot of confusion on that one too. Right? In our culture, lots of confusion there. Indeed, this, is, uh, this one's probably as controversial as number three. Uh, I expect this one's going to dominate the upcoming presidential campaign, right? Because it's, it's a big issue in our culture. And you know what? It's at the heart of the book of Ruth. Ruth is an immigrant, right? Ruth is an immigrant. And not only is she an immigrant, she's not Jewish. It's really kind of ironic if you think about it. One of the most famous women in the Hebrew scriptures, one of the fam most famous and beloved women in the, in the Jewish Bible, in the Old Testament, isn't an ethnic Jew. 
She's not Jewish. She's a Moabite. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, she's a Moabite. And the Moabites were not, they weren't exactly Israel's enemies at this time period, but they sure weren't friends. Uh, and so Ruth helps us think through, through these issues. What do you do when somebody comes from another place, from another country, maybe from a place that's very different, right? And so Ruth lets us, helps us think through those kinds of issues too, race and ethnicity. Uh, number five, uh, we should study Ruth because it helps us understand the sovereignty of God. It helps us understand God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is a key doctrine in the scriptures, and it's at the heart of this book. And here's the thing to say. Ruth shows us God's sovereignty in action. Right? It's not so much presented as a doctrine here. If you want that, go read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Right? We can talk about it propositionally in a book like that. What Ruth does is it shows us. Ruth shows us what it looks like for God to be sovereign over our lives. It shows us sovereignty in real life. So it lets us talk about that issue. Number six, uh, we should study Ruth because Ruth shows us what it means to love other people with radical risk-taking love. Again, gives us a beautiful picture of what it looks like to love somebody the way God loves us and, and the way God tells us to love others. Right? And we're going to see it in the way Ruth, we'll talk about actually it'll be next week's passage, the way Ruth treats her mother-in-law, Naomi. It's a radical, risk-taking love that Ruth shows to Naomi. And you'll see it in the way Boaz treats Ruth. Right? So both two of the, the main characters in the book are, are going to show us what it looks like to love. And that's the way Jesus calls his disciples to love. Right? Very much so. You know, what did Jesus tell us? Love your enemies. You cannot love your enemies without a pretty radical, risky, risk-taking approach to, to showing love. And so uh, we study Ruth for that reason as well. And it, show, it shows us what radical love looks like in real life. And then finally, we study Ruth because Ruth points to Jesus. This book points to Jesus. It's, it's pretty amazing. For a book written a, th- a thousand years before Jesus was born, it's a surprisingly Christological book. There's a lot of Jesus in this book, and you'll see what I mean as, as we go along. So, so those are some, again, with, uh, with hat tip to, uh, to John Piper and thanks to him for that little book. Uh, those are some, some of the reasons, and, and those are, this, this also serves as a little bit of a preview of some of the themes. In fact, I hope to hit on all of these things as we go along over the next few weeks. So now let's uh, wade into the backdrop here, this backstory, um, and that brings us to the two types of, of uh, troubles, troubled times we see. Uh, The first type uh, is what I want to call publicly, publicly troubled times. Uh, God is still God even in our most publicly troubled times. And by public, I mean all the stuff that is out there, right? All the stuff that's outside of our own daily lives, our own immediate experience. That's what I mean by public in the way I'm using the term this morning. And Ruth teaches us God's still God. In those times, even when everything looks like it's fallen apart at the big picture, God is still God. Let's talk a little bit about this background. So, um, actually, some, some data on the book. I just think it's important to know this stuff. So, kind of the who, what, and why of the book. Uh, first of all, who wrote it? Who wrote the book of Ruth? Uh, it's not Ruth. Uh, there's no tradition that says Ruth wrote it. The, the, in, in actuality, we do not know. We don't know who wrote Ruth. Um, tradition says, Jewish tradition ascribed it to, um, attributed to Samuel, so the prophet Samuel, who um, you meet at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Uh, tradition says Samuel wrote 
uh, the book of Ruth. And so if we had to attach a name to it, we would attach Samuel's, but we really won't. Like I say, we have no way to know for sure, and it's not in the Bible that says that. So, so maybe Samuel, but someone wrote it. More important is the date. In terms of a date to the book, it was probably written during the reign of King David. So, so 3,000 years ago. It's probably written when David was king. Uh, when you get to the end of the book, and if you have your own Bible open, you're welcome to kind of flip a page or two and look at this. But at the end of the book, it's going to end by giving us the genealogy of David. We're going to learn that Ruth was his grandmother or great-grandmother. And uh, so, so we're told that this is really what we have here is an origin story for King David. But Solomon isn't mentioned. And so if the book had been written, it's a little bit of kind of reasoning here, but Solomon in his day was greater than David. Of course, he fell at the end of it. But um, if, if you were going to write a book much later than that, you'd put Solomon in here too. And so a lot of scholars kind of look at that, and the Jewish tradition looks at that and says this book was written during David's time, which means right around 1000 B.C., um, the events themselves go back at least 100 years before that. You've got to back up 100 years before. So the story we're looking at happened, oh, let's call it 1100 B.C. Right, so 1,100 years before Jesus was born. Um, we're going to talk about the judges in just a minute, but it's during that judges period. Uh, if you want a contemporary, think in terms of Samson. Samson was probably alive doing his stuff when this story happened. Or maybe Jephthah. That, both of them were kind of contemporaries. So that kind of situates you in time in terms of the Old Testament. Which is really amazing, by the way. This little book that we're going to spend this time in. This story, the, the, the true story of Ruth and Boaz, is older than the Odyssey and the Iliad. All right? Think about these most ancient stories, and they'll still read them in some colleges anyway. And some high schools will read these, you know, the, these, these famous works from Greek literature, the Odyssey and the Iliad. The book of Ruth is hundreds of years earlier. Hundreds of years before those were written. So that's the dating on this. We're looking at a, a wonderfully ancient and yet so relevant story. Uh, the book's name, one more on this here, the book's name comes from the pivotal figure in the book. It's this young woman named Ruth, whom we meet briefly today. Uh, but she's not the only character, and this is important to recognize. This is a series on the book of Ruth, but we're not going to only talk about Ruth. Uh, in fact, you could make the case, and some do, that Ruth's not even the main character. Some people argue she's not even the main character of the book. You can make a pretty good case that Naomi is the main character of the book, because the whole book kind of focuses on her. It starts with Naomi, it ends with Naomi, and there's lots of Naomi in between. So you could make the case, you know, you could say, well, they should have called it Naomi, but for God's providence, they call it Ruth. But, uh, so, so that's where the name of the book comes from. Um, I said a minute ago, uh, Naomi lived in the, in the days of the judges. So I want to talk about Naomi. Actually, I'm mostly going to focus on Naomi this morning. Uh, Naomi lived in the days of the judges, and it's just four words, right? There it is at the introduction to the book, right? In, in the days when the judges ruled. In, Hebrews, in Hebrew, the Hebrew language, it's four words, but they tell us a lot, right? If we're tuned into scripture, those four little words tell us a lot about when Naomi lived, because what it tells us is that Naomi and the, her, her family lived during one of the bleakest periods, it was one of the bleakest, ugliest periods in the history of Israel. Uh, and, and that's the point of starting this way. We, with just four words, the author has told us, Naomi lived in troubled times. 
She lived in troubled times. Uh, the period of the judges lasted about 400 years. It was about four centuries. And then most of this period was marked by chaos. That's always the word I think of when I think of the book of Judges. And you can read the... Read, in fact, it would be an interesting exercise for you if you have time this week, or you can make some time. Read the book of Judges, because it'll situate you to the world that, that this book is taking place in. Uh, it was very chaotic. Uh, there was political chaos political chaos. Uh, No one was really in charge, right? Moses was dead, Joshua was dead, and in the vacuum after they leave, it all kind of spun out to the, uh, they they went home, they they died. Um, It it devolved into a tribal system. Basically, Israel was governed by tribes, and you would have these tribal chieftains, the tribes were the 12 tribes, and different chieftains would rise up. And so that's what Samson was, that's what Gideon was. They were tribal chieftains. And so there was political chaos. There was no king, there was no unity. Sometimes the tribes would fight each other. Sometimes they would refuse to cooperate with each other. It was political chaos. Uh, There was also religious chaos in the days of the judges. Several stories in Judges show this. Again, if you read through the book, you'll see what I mean. People were worshiping different gods, uh, or more often they were pretending to worship the real God, but they were doing it in ways that were not what he said. And so you get this thing called syncretism, where they were bringing in pagan rituals, and then they were trying to kind of make Yahweh fit into that pagan world. And, And so they were just kind of all doing whatever they wanted to do spiritually. And so it was religious chaos, political chaos. And if you read through that book, you'll see there was also moral chaos. It was morally chaotic. It was a very violent period. It was also a very sexually sinful period. And sometimes the sexual sin and the violence came together. There's a couple of really awful stories and judges about that. The social structures were messed up. You have stories about men refusing to do what they're supposed to do. Women have to keep um, <clears throat> rescuing the nation, basically, because the men won't defend the nation. It's a it's, it's pretty um, chaotic period morally as well there in the, in the period of Judges. And the whole thing gets summed up. What kinds of times did, did Naomi live in? It's all summed up in Judges with the phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the phrase is repeated like four or five times in Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was chaos. Does any of that sound familiar? You kind of scratch it a little bit and you think, well, some of that, some of that anyway sounds way too familiar. Uh, I think of political chaos, for instance. Uh, Boy, that sure does describe our system sometimes. Uh, And I I continue to insist that our system is the best one that man has ever devised, man and woman together have ever devised. But but boy, even with a wonderful system like what we have here in the United States, we still manage to to muck it up uh, with our own sin and our own uh, fighting and, and, and so on. A lot of political chaos these days. Uh, religious chaos, for sure. Right? In fact, I think you'd make a pretty strong case that Western culture has not been this spiritually confused since the Dark Ages. I mean, just so much, uh, so much spiritual confusion and mixing things together and not living and, and, and worshiping uh, the way God has told us to do. And so you have, religious, you have political chaos, religious chaos, and then, of course, there's, there's moral chaos. Uh, if that phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, if that doesn't describe us, I don't know who it does, who it does describe. Right? It's very much so the, the mentality in modern Western culture. And so we, we, you know, those, it's just four words, but we look at what it means to say uh, that this story takes place in the days of the judges and we go, okay, yeah, I understand that. Because I live in times that are, that are sort of like that too. I live in times like the ones Naomi lived in. But here's the thing, all of that, it's not even the worst of it. 
That's not even the worst of it for Naomi, because as we keep reading, we learn that the real problem is that there was a famine in the land. Right? That's verse 1. That's the whole verse. In the days when the judges ruled and all that that meant, there was a famine in the land. And so now we get into this, this more personal layer of the troubles that Naomi was facing. Not only did she and her family live in this chaotic period, uh, you know, kind of big picture, but then they also found themselves living through a famine and everything that goes with that, the drought and the hunger and the, you know, the thirst and the, the economic deprivation, all of that stuff that was going on. So now the troubles are, are, it's not just kind of, oh, hey, did you hear what happened up in Shechem? No, this is much more personal. Now this is hitting much closer to home. Uh, and that brings us to the other type of trouble. And you could, you could see where we were headed with this one. The other kind of trouble God is still God over is our personally troubled times. It's so clear in this book. God is still God, even in our personally troubled times. We're not told how long this family stayed in Bethlehem while this famine was going on. We don't know how long they suffered with it. Um, probably as long as they could, right? You put yourself in their position. You, you know, you're not going to bolt two weeks in. I mean, you're going to, you know, I'm sure they tried to make it work, but at some point, the famine had stretched on long enough that uh, Elimelech, the, the, the husband in the family, decides we're going to move. He decides they're going to move. And so it's uh, verses one and two. <clears throat> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem, Bethlehem, we know Bethlehem, right? That's, it's going to hover there in our brains, the whole Jesus connection. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites, which is a geographical description, by the way. It's not a tribe. It's like it's a region. It's like saying we're Iowans. Uh, they, were, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. So Naomi's married, her husband's name is Elimelech, and Elimelech decides we, we need to move. And, uh, you know, he decides to immigrate, right? So, and, and it's because he's hungry and he wants opportunities. So if you need another reason to be sympathetic with the people down at the borders, and I know that's a tough issue, but if, you, if we need one, Here's a guy who was facing the same sorts of situations. In a, in a time of desperation, he decides to go to a place that maybe isn't going to want him there, but he's going to go anyway because he knows there's economic opportunity there. So he decides he's going to take his family. We're going to go to Moab. And I said, I, I, again, if you're not clear in the geography, Moab is not one of the tribes of Israel. It's not a state in Israel. Uh, Moab is another country. Historically, the Moabites are the descendants of Lot. So there was this relationship dating all the way back to Abraham, hundreds and hundreds of years, probably even close to a thousand years. Uh, so, so there's historically a connection. So it's not the same as the Canaanites. The Moabites weren't under the ban. You weren't supposed to wipe out the Moabites the way they were supposed to wipe out the Canaanites. But historically, the Moabites and the Israelites had done this a few times, including very early on in the period of the judges. They were actually early in judges in the first three or four chapters. There's a war between the Moabites and the, and the Israelites. By the time you get to when Ruth is alive and, and Naomi's alive, um, there, there's not a hot war, but they're not friendly. Right? So again, this family goes to this place where they may not be welcomed, but they feel a need to go anyway. Man needs to feed his family. And so that's where Elimelech takes his wife and his sons. When they get there, the move does not go like he hoped. Right? The move does not go the way Elimelech hoped. He wanted a fresh start and uh, a better life. But instead, when they get to Moab, things get worse. 
Things get worse for this family. They settle down in Moab, and that much is clear. They're making a home there. The, the verbs are, are uh, we're told that they moved there and they stayed there. That's what remained means. So they settle down. They're going to make their home in Moab. But sometime soon, and there's no time indicator, but it definitely feels like it's sometime soon, after they get there, Elimelech dies. The provider, the guy in charge, of the, the guy leading his family, the man who's going to take care of them, he dies when they get there. And that's verse 3. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left alone with her two sons. Talk about your lousy timing. What lousy timing. If, if Elimelech knew that was what was going to happen, they would have never left. Right? They would have stayed in Bethlehem. At least they had friends there. They seemed to own some land there, actually. It wasn't growing anything, but at least they owned some land. Uh, if he knew that was what was going to happen, he never, ever, ever would have taken his family to Moab. When I was 10, uh, my, my grandparents decided to move from New Jersey to Florida. So this is my maternal grandparents, so my mother's uh, father and mother. Uh, they, they decided to move. They were gonna, and uh, they'd been in New Jersey for decades. My, father's name was, my grandfather's name was Chester, and uh, he actually fought in World War II. He was a mechanic in the Navy. Uh, he worked on airplanes in the Navy in the Pacific Theater. I don't know what any more than that, but that's what he did. And uh, he came back from the war, married my grandmother, and they settled down in northern New Jersey. And they lived there for, like I say, decades. Uh, when my f- grandfather was 56, uh, he got a, a job offer, actually from a, a relative, down in Florida. And it was a good job, and it was warm, and uh, <laughs> Florida was, a, uh, even then, was kind of a place that people were starting to look to. And so they decided, we're going to do it. And so they, they started packing up all the boxes, put their house on the market, the whole, uh, all the stuff you do. And they sold. They sold their house, and... Got, we're getting ready to move down to Florida. A few days, and it really was just a few days after the closing, my grandfather, Chester, had a massive heart attack and died. 56 years old, he died. That changed everything for my grandmother, whose name, by the way, was Ruth. It's one of the reasons I always think of them with this book. Uh, my grandmother's name was Ruth, and the rest of her life was utterly upside down because of that unexpected death. Uh, she couldn't stay. The house was sold already. It was already closed. I don't know if they tried anything legally to claw it back, but it, I was only 10, but, but they couldn't. The house was, was already sold. They didn't have anything in Florida yet, and even if they did, the job wasn't hers. It was, it was his job, not hers. And, and so there was no reason now. There was no place for them now in Florida. They couldn't stay in New Jersey. She actually, my two youngest uncles were still living, were, were still teenagers, because they had a bunch of kids, and my mother was among the oldest. Um, and so um, my two youngest uncles, so there she was, a lot like what Naomi finds herself, alone, no husband, two young sons, or teenage sons, and she had nowhere to go. So they ended up coming to live with, uh, not, not with us, but up in the same town as us in upstate New York, and that's where she lived for the next 10 or 12 years until she died. And uh, can I tell you, she didn't like it. <laughs> she, <laughs> She didn't like living where we lived. It was very, very rural. She'd been a city girl all her life down in northern New Jersey. Um, It wasn't home for her. She didn't have the places she knew and that she liked and all the rest. Those were hard years for her. But she didn't have any choice, right, because of this completely unexpected turn of events, this completely unexpected death of her husband. And I think of that when I think of Naomi, right? Because that's Naomi. I'm doing more with less this morning so that we feel the weight of what this woman was bearing. Here she is. She's trapped. Naomi's trapped. 
in this foreign land. Her husband's gone and she's got two boys that she's now got to raise all by herself. She's a strong woman, though. Sometimes people approach this book as if Naomi's a, a, a weakling. You know, oh, she complains so much. Yeah, she's going to complain. I don't know. I don't blame her. She's got a lot to complain about. Uh, I think Naomi's a strong woman because she made it work. Somehow she made it work. She, she finished. We don't know how old they were. They, they weren't probably, they weren't little kids because they're going to get married. They were, I picture them as, as kind of teenagers, Malon and, and Kilian. Um, so there she is. She's going to finish raising them sometime later. They get married, so there's going to be a decade. We're going to be told in verse 5, a decade passes, or maybe it's verse 4. Um, so somewhere in that 10 years, Elimelech dies very soon on. Somewhere in there, she marries them off. She gets Malon and Kilian are married. They marry Moabite women. And sometimes commentators are going to get on their case about this. Well, they shouldn't have married foreigners. Well, that's, that's all that's around. I mean, they... That's, that's who they married. So they, there were these two Moabite women. They, some, I don't know what arrangements were made, but they married two women, and we meet these two women. Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and, and Ruth. We're introduced to her for like her, her name now, and Ruth. Orpah and Ruth. And, and if we imagine how this goes, and we give it 10 years to transpire, it does feel like maybe things got a little better for Naomi, right? It wasn't all bad. There's always some good mixed in with the bad. She still has her sons. Now she has these two daughters, daughters-in-law, and they seem to get along well. We'll see that next week. They seem to have a pretty good relationship. And so, you know, and, and, and with that, there's hope, hope for grandchildren. Maybe the name will live on, even though Elimelech died young. And, and so there's some hope here. Things seem to get a little better. But then tragedy strikes again. Ten years after the original move, so we've got a decade from when they left Bethlehem to seek a better place to when this happens. Ten years later, the sons die as well. And again, we're not given anything. A curiosity, we want to know what happened, but this isn't their story. This is Naomi's story and Ruth's story. So they died. War, famine, plague, we don't know. But both sons die relatively close to each other. And again, we're not told why they die. Instead, we're told the effect on Naomi. And that's what the author emphasizes. Because the text here really stresses Naomi's desolation. If you take these first five verses, this backdrop introduction, the stress is on Naomi's desolation. She is alone. Uh, And uh, we've already seen some of it, but so so in verse 5, there's two ways the author emphasizes it in verse 5. The first is that he describes her sons as little boys. The Hebrew word that's used when it says her sons died is the word for little boys. It's not the word for adult men. But we know they're adult men because they've both gotten married. They both have wives. And so it's their little boys. Why does, why does the author use that word? To make us go like this, right? It's, oh, right, every mother in the room gets it. Yeah, her, her little boys died, right? They're always your little boys all the way to the end, right? And, and, and so it's, it's, it, the author uses that word to emphasize the loss for Naomi. It's her sons. It's her sons. And then... Um, the other way we're stressed this is, is the sense in verse 5, her, her sense of loss is emphasized, is, is the wording in verse 5. Both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman, it's not Naomi. He's told us her name numerous times. Grammatically, it would make a lot of sense to say her name again, right? So we know we're not talking about one of the daughters-in-law, for example. But the author doesn't do that. He says the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
And so by the time we get to verse 5, the end of verse 5, and now we're going to get into the story, Naomi has lost everything. In verse 1, she lost her home. In verse 3, she lost her husband. In verse 4, she lost her sons. And in verse 5, she loses herself. Right? She, she loses her very identity. Uh, um, textually, uh, her name is stripped from the story. Right? As, as a literary sort of thing. That's the word I was reaching for. In a literary way, even her name is removed. Everything Naomi cares about in five verses has been taken away from her. Well, next week we'll see that Naomi is not completely alone in God's goodness. And that it's the whole point is God is still good and he's still in charge. And we're going to see that she's not bereft. She's not alone. There's still one person who's going to stand with her and that's going to change everything. But in terms of how the book begins, her situation could hardly be more, traffic, more tragic. Right? She's got both types of trouble, the public and the personal. She's got them in spades. She's living through them both. And I know it's a holiday weekend, and I know it's a beautiful day outside, but I wonder this morning how many of us can identify with that. I wonder how many can, can really feel a kindredness, a kindred spirit with Naomi today. How many are facing our own troubled times? Maybe it's the, pub, the, the public ones, right? The public uh, troubled times. Uh, you know, sometimes we're all living in them, but some of us feel it more acutely than others, right? Some are really bothered by the stuff that's happening in the bigger world. And so maybe that's troubling you. Or maybe it's more personal. Maybe it's, it's uh, something that affects your life directly, something in your family, your marriage, your business, your physical health, whatever it is. You're, you're troubled in a more personal, direct way. And you identify with, with Naomi that way. But whatever the specifics are, as we begin this series and we send ourselves out into another week here, I, I want to encourage you to remember this basic lesson that God is still God. Even in the middle of that whole thing, God is still God and he's still good. And we're going to see that. We're going to see how it works out in this little book. Well, but, but as we, you know, and again, we're not, we don't really get there till chapter four. We see hints of it and grace and grace. Um, sometimes it's, it, 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 you got to get to the end to see the fullness of it. But let's begin with the end in mind. Let's begin by reminding ourselves that God is still good, even in our most troubled times. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you so much for, um, for you. I thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, your mercy, your kindness, your patience. Uh, you, you never allow us to suffer alone. Our, we, we worship a savior and ascribe our whole faith to the savior who suffered with us and for us and in place of us. And so none of our sufferings or our struggles or our troubles are foreign to you. You are not remote and far off. You are near. And uh, we thank you and, and humbly praise you for that, God. And I just want to pray for myself and every one of us who hears these words. Help us to remember that, to hold fast to it. Some in this room, some hearing these words are facing intensely troubled times. And in the midst of them, Lord, I pray that you'd help every one of us to remember that you are still God and that we can hold fast to you even when we don't understand what you're doing. Please do that in us. Form that kind of faith. Keep forming that kind of faith in us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.